following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Good morning, friends. If you'll take your Bibles in hand and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I've lost count of how many weeks we've been here, so maybe eight or so now in 2 Timothy. And we're now coming to the end of chapter 3 this morning. I pray that this study has been both edifying for you and glorifying to God. And I know it's been great for me. I've, I've truly enjoyed the study and um, just a beautiful book. And so uh, we're going to get into some really beautiful text even this morning as we look at the rest of chapter three. Friends, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read all of chapter three verses one through 17 this morning. Just to give us a little context as we look at our text, which will be verses 10 through 17 this morning. Starting in chapter 3 of the second letter of Paul to Timothy and verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Giannis Iambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. And here is our text for this morning. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. For persecutions I endured, yet from all them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation 
through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, here we are, the end of chapter 3. Come through much text here, and we come to this beautiful closing out to this chapter. I just want to remind you briefly a little bit about what we saw last week and where we've come. Chapter 3, as we see, starts off with a drab reminder. It's kind of, it's not a good look. It says, in these last days, there will come times of difficulty. And we all talked about the reality of the end times being from when Christ first appeared to his second coming. So we are living in the end times today, and there is going to be difficult times. Why? Well, there's a variety of reasons. One, sin will continue to grow and compound and cause more and more impact. But specifically, what Paul is concerned with is false teaching and false teachers. False teaching and the impact of it will be made known in the world and in the church. We see it happening already today. We see false teachers walking around, opening up the Bible, using it for their own misdeeds and and ill excuses of trying to gain their own power and their own control. And it's impacting the church. It's leading people away from God and towards their own sinful desires. In essence, what will happen is people will become lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Remember, we saw the bracketing. He says, for people will be lovers of self, and then it says they will be lovers of pleasure. Once again, it's all about self. They will desire more than anything to please themselves. They will desire more than anything that their own, their own pleasure is put at the top level. Complete hedonism, where they are put at the, that their comforts and their pleasures are everything to them. They won't care about pleasing God anymore. They won't care that there is even a God. They'll just be so consumed with their own desires. We see it happening throughout our world today. Sadly, we see it happening in the church. We see the fact that there will be these people who will maintain a godly appearance, but they will never experience the life-giving power that comes only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see even Paul relate to some to relate the false teachers that Timothy was dealing with, with the men who were corrupted in mind that opposed Moses. However, even in the midst of the false teaching, he closes out in verse 9 and he says, But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. And now as we enter our, our text for this week, we're going to see Paul call on Timothy to continue in this faith. How is he to do this with so much evil, so much persecution, so much that's going to go on? He says there's going to be these times of difficulty. It's going to be burdensome for him. How is he to do it? Paul doesn't give him some five-step plan. Paul doesn't give him something to step out into. He doesn't say, hey, if you follow this path out over here, maybe that'll work for you. He says, do what you've been doing. 
Hold fast to the scriptures. Follow in what you know to be true. Hold fast to what you have believed firmly. But most importantly, those scriptures. The scriptures are exactly what Timothy needs to cherish all the more, as we will see in our text today, because they are sufficient to meet every need that he will have in his ministry. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures are sufficient to meet every need that you have. They will bring you salvation. They will bring you sanctification. They will give you the power and the strength to continue on when the times are difficult. You don't need to look towards something else. You don't need any five-step plans. You don't need anybody else to tell you. You have the word of God. You have God's word and that is sufficient for all things. So as we look at our text today, I invite you to see four overarching points as we look at this reality of continuing in the faith. First, the example for continuing in the faith in verses 10 and 11. Second, the reality of continuing in the faith, verses 12 and 13. Third, the call for continuing in the faith, verses 14 and 15. And finally, as we close out our fourth point, the power for continuing in the faith, verses 16 and 17. So let us just dive right into our first point this morning, the example for continuing in the faith. I invite you to hear once again verses 10 and 11. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. So Paul has been doing this throughout the text, right? He's been creating these contrasts. He says, here's what people are going to do, and here's what you were to do, Timothy. Here's what false teachers teach. Here's what you're going to teach. He points them always back onto this narrow path. He says, don't follow on the wide path. Stay on the narrow path. And he does that again here. He says, you, however, he creates a, construct, a contrast. Unlike these false teachers, unlike the false doctrines that are going to create all sorts of men that are lovers of self, following more and more into evil, he says, you, however, have followed. The Greek word for followed here literally means to be an accompaniment with, to be in conforming to a matter of conviction. It's not just a, oh yeah, I kind of know the story, right? We do that with all kinds of news stories today. We say we follow this, right? You followed the Johnny Depp trial or you followed what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, but it's not like that. It's this following of being in com complete conformity of conviction. It's saying, I followed him. I knew everything. I was there. I experienced it. William Barclay actually wrote on this, just on this word, and he said, it means to follow a person physically, to stick by him through thick and thin, to be by his side in fair weather and in foul. It means to follow a person mentally, to attend diligently to his teaching, and to fully understand the meaning and the significance of what he says. It means to follow a person spiritually, 
Not only to understand what he says, but also to carry out his ideas and to be the kind of person that he wishes us to be. This is Timothy with Paul. He looks at Paul and Paul is his father in the faith and he says, I want to know what you know. You saw the risen Christ. I want to experience what you have experienced. I want to understand every aspect of what that has meant. What turned you from being this Jewish man to being this follower of the way, follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to go on to list nine areas here that Timothy has followed him. There are nine things that Timothy has been actively involved in, that he's aware of, that he's followed in completely. These nine areas can be grouped into kind of three sections. Paul first points Timothy to his ministry. Notice he says, my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. Then he points Timothy to his characteristics. He says, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And finally, he points Timothy to a third area, his experiences, as he calls his attention back to the persecutions and the sufferings that he endured. So let's dive right into these areas that Timothy had become intimately acquainted with as he followed Paul. First, he says, my teaching, being used in general to refer to doctrine. Remember who Paul is, right? In the beginning of this book, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He has apostolic authority, divine teaching that comes through it. And what is that teaching? What is he telling him? What's the central theme? Well, there's a variety of things that Paul talks about through the various letters that he wrote. But some central themes that we see come to fruition are the centrality of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He doesn't talk about Himself. He doesn't talk about the things that He's done. He says, I, have no, I know nothing except for Christ and Him crucified. Another central theme, the gospel. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Another area. The union of the believer with Christ. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This happens for every believer. There's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the teaching that Paul has intimately shared with Timothy. This is what Timothy has followed in. He says, my conduct. Timothy had lived with Paul and had seen his actions. He had seen everything that was going on. He saw his day-to-day life and the way he interacted with people. He saw how he took care of himself, his hygiene, every aspect of what his life was like. And he knew that he had shaped his life around Christ. Paul is stating simply, my life is a template for Christian living. You've seen what I've done. Follow in it. Do what I've shown you. My aim in life, commitment to carry out this apostolic calling, 
bringing the gospel to the Gentile world. Remember in Acts chapter 9 when Saul is struck by Christ. He sees this great light and says, why are you persecuting me? And he says, I am the Christ. And he has these scales that come over his eyes. He's in darkness and he's led. And later on in the story, Ananias, a believer in the city, is called upon to go and to pray for him. And the Lord says to Ananias in chapter 9 and verse 15, Go, for he is the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This was his aim in life, to bring this gospel message to the Gentiles. It's because of him that we can sit here today. It's because of Paul's ministry, going out and sharing this gospel to the Gentiles that you and I, Gentiles, can know Christ. And then turning to his character, he says, My faith, his personal commitment to Christ, Paul's trust in God. A summary we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among, proclaimed among the nations, Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. My patience, wait for results, perseverance in, op- in opposition. We see Paul writing where he references the patience kind of occurring in various ways. In character, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. The Spirit's work, Galatians chapter 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. And in his ministry, chapter, or sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, Riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. My love, he says. Just earlier in this, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, he says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The love that he experienced, the love that he shared with the world was all stemming from the saving work that happened in Christ. It's tied to his faith. It's, he can't do one or the other. It's not like he has faith but no love or love and no faith. They're tied together. And he says, my faith and my love, counterparts of each other. My steadfastness, being resolute, firm, unwavering. How we strive for that as believers today, to be firm and unwavering. Paul has called on Timothy to follow in him being steadfast. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness. And he knows that it's manifested most in our suffering, right? That's when we're called to be steadfast. It's easy to be steadfast when things are going well. It's easy for us to stand up here or to stand in front of others and say, I believe in Jesus Christ. 
Everything is great. It's harder when everything goes downhill. Paul was the perfect example. He said, you followed me in my steadfastness. And he says, because you've seen me suffer. You know that in the midst of the sufferings, I could have just said, I'm done with this. But no, steadfastness. That was what held on. I held on to Christ because I know what I believed. I'm resolute. I am firm and I am unwavering. Romans chapter 5. Not only that, we, that, but, not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings. Talk about being steadfast, rejoicing in them, knowing that suffering produces endurance or steadfastness, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Paul looked on Timothy's life and he said, Brother, you've seen what I've gone through. It's not going to get easier for you. You need to be steadfast. It's an identifying mark of any missionary to the Gentiles, but... Even in our world today, this should be an identifying mark of us. Steadfastness. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are com- comforted, it is for your comfort. Which you experience when you patiently endure. When you are steadfast in the same sufferings that we suffer. Friends, sufferings will occur. Be steadfast. And we're going to see exactly how we're able to do that as we continue in our text. We've been given an example in Paul, and we're going to see that continue on as he calls on us to hold fast to the scriptures. And finally, he talks about his experiences, talking about persecutions and sufferings. The two words here kind of give almost an overarching setup. He says, persecutions, talking about specific experiences. Like in 2 Corinthians, where he says he was beaten with rods, stoned, lashed, but then sufferings, just a broader scope of all of the trials and hardships that he went through. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy with comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he says, specific times. He calls his mind back on specific times when Timothy knows and is aware of these situations. He says, That happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. He gives these illustrations, and he's talking about from his first missionary journey, and he says, you know what happened to me at Antioch? It was a Roman colony that had been, found, or been taken in by decree of Augustus in 25 BC. And what happened in Acts chapter 13? It resulted in Paul and Barnabas being driven out of the city. Iconium, Another prosperous city located in these intersecting roads between Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia with the Roman capital. Acts chapter 14 resulted in Paul's fleeing. He was run out of town again. And he knows of Lystra, founded in 26 BC by Augustus as well. Acts chapter 14, verses 6 through 19, it tells the whole story and what happens at the end. Paul is stoned. And dragged out of the city because they believed they had killed him. He says, you know the persecutions. You know the sufferings. You know the times I've been run out of cities. You know the times I've been stoned. Timothy knew these experiences that Paul is recalling. But why bring them up then? Why call his attention to those? Paul reminds Timothy of the pattern of life that Paul has set forth. 
this pattern of life that he is living at this very moment as he writes this letter from a Roman prison. He says, follow me. You know what I'm going to do. You know that I'm going to be killed at any moment. Follow me into death. You hear of military might and you hear people say, as we go into battle, it's like we're going to battle until the death, right? We're never going to give up. And that's basically what Paul is telling him here. He says, you've known my, my struggles. You've known the persecutions and the sufferings. Battle with me. Run into the battlefield and keep fighting until you are done. And he says, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. The word here in Greek for endured relates something of being in extreme struggle. It's not the enduring of stubbing your toe. This is extreme struggle. It's bearing up under temptation as 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But he says, I have bared with these things. He's held out. He's not caved in. 1 Peter chapter 2 calls upon all believers to be this way, right? For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Paul has lived this out. And he says, yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Paul did not get relieved of hardships or pain. I mean, he was stoned to the point of being considered dead. But God kept him from death, strengthened him for the ministry, and sent him back into the field. I mean, after his stoning, when they find him, he gets up and they take him on to the next city. They say, off we go. Paul's suffering confirms rather than denies his apostolic ministry. Because he suffered and then endured, because the Lord rescued him and pulled him out, it confirmed that it was meant to continue on. Sufferings will occur, but the Lord rescues. So Timothy was to be reminded that of the fact that suffering for Christ was okay. It was what was expected. And that the Lord would sustain him and equip him for the ministry ahead. Friends, as sufferings occur for you in your life, look at Paul. Endure. You have the example set before you. The example to continue on in this faith. Let us turn now our attention to our, our second point here. The reality of continuing in the faith. Because the reality is, is that we will indeed suffer. Notice verse 12 and 13. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Yes, they will. Remember John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me first. If you were the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they would also they will also keep yours. But all these things they will not they will do to you on account of my name, because they because they do not know him who sent me. The faithful believer will experience persecution. It's a fact. Opposition to the truth is natural to the sinful nature of men. We know that because Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, right? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If you stand for truth, of course people are going to persecute you because they want to suppress truth. They want to stand against truth. And he says, while evil people and imposters... He's talking about these false teachers again, these evil, these maligned in character and activity. It's the same word that's used about Satan himself in Matthew 13, talking about the parable of the sower. He says, Satan is the maligner, this evil one. And imposters. It's funny because the word in Greek means wailer or howler, a juggler or enchanter. It kind of reminds me of those Guys who you see doing magic tricks on the side of the road, right? You'll see videos of this. Obviously, we don't have that in Las Cruces as much. But um, in big cities, you'll have these guys doing performance art. And they'll be juggling or kind of like, oh, I can guess your weight or I can guess your height or I can do these variety of things. And these are the imposters. It's pointing towards these men who lead you away from truth. They want you to focus over here so they can do something over here. They want to give you some show and something to look at, but it's not truth. These evil men, these imposters, will go on from bad to worse. They're both internally and externally going to be going from bad to worse. The internal beliefs impact their external behaviors. We saw that in 1 Timothy, right? 1 Timothy, your belief naturally impacts your behavior. So if you believe the right things, you act the right way. If you don't, if you're not acting the right way, there's a problem probably with your beliefs. And they say it's deceiving and being deceived. To wander, to go astray. It's interesting because they're both being deceived and they're deceiving. They're impacting others by their deceitful ways, but they're also falling deeper and deeper and deeper into their own deceit. They find themselves steadily sinking into their own errors and falsehoods. It's interesting because you think about the basis for belief, right? If you start off with one wrong error, anybody that's done a large math problem knows this, right? You do one math problem, you start at the top, you forgot that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and you said it equals 5, and then at the very end, it doesn't work out. And you don't understand why. And it's because you take the one small error at the beginning, and it impacts everything else. This is what's happening with these evil men, these imposters. They're not only deceiving, but they're being more and more deceived. Because they started with one error, no matter how small in the beginning, it's going to impact everything that they do moving forward. And until they correct the one error in the beginning, everything else is wrong. Friends, don't be that. Correct errors. We're going to see that the scripture is the way in which you correct errors. Correct them. Turn from any falsehoods and turn back to truth. We've seen our first two points here. 
the example for continuing the faith, the reality of continuing in the faith. The simple reality is that Timothy will experience persecution. He's seen it happen for Paul. It's going to happen for him. But notice what Paul does. He says, continue on. So let's look at our, look at our third point, the call for continuing in the faith. Verse 14 and 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus. But as for you, unlike the evil men that are mentioned before, these imposters, you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. He gives the command again says, don't stop, don't fall astray, ongoing, continuing on in what you have learned. What Timothy had experienced, what he had actively learned from the study of the word and following under Paul's tutelage all those years. And he says, and firmly believed. Timothy's active study of the word and learning from Paul led him to strong convictions. He knew what he believed and he firmly believed it. He held on to it. Timothy was not a wishy-washy man on what he believed. He may have been timid. He may have had issues with being a little shy, but he knew what he believed. He was rather firm in his belief because he knew it to be truth. He possessed this belief wholeheartedly. I just want to stop right there for just a second and just think about that. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Friends, what have you learned and firmly believed? Take that to heart. This gospel truth, this Bible, these scriptures are meant to be read, not just for reading's sake. They're meant to be read that they might be saturating your hearts and that you might firmly believe them. You might hold on to them with a firm grasp. Paul and Timothy give us a perfect example of that, that we might know them, that we might know these words and that we might hold on to them as we go out into the world, as we experience co-workers and friends and all varieties of people, strangers on the street, that we are firm in our beliefs, that there is nothing that is going to stray us from the truth of the gospel, that nothing is going to stray us from the truth of the word of God. And Paul says here, knowing whom you learned it, knowing from whom you learned it. Paul obviously is reminding Timothy of the fact that he had learned from him, but also the plural noun here indicates that there were others. The whom is plural pronoun. It's not just saying whom, like, hey, look at me, who you learned from. He says, remember others that you learned from. This was encouraging to Timothy. He could look at these individuals and be encouraged by their beliefs, by their convictions, by their lives, He says, remain strong, no matter the suffering, because remember whom you've learned it from. This is of utmost importance for us, because it matters whom we've learned from. These people that we've learned from should be an example for us. They should be people that we look to for growth. It should call us to deeper and deeper and deeper fellowship with one another that we might learn from one another, that we might grow together 
So that when one day someone says, know whom you've learned it from, we might look and say, oh, I know. I know those brothers. I know those sisters that I've spent time with, that I've learned from, that I've shared this gospel truth with, that we have grown up together. I've seen the way that the Lord has worked in their lives, and I know that he can work in mine too. I know that he is working in mine too. He says, and how from childhood. Some translations here use infancy to point to this being everything that Timothy had been brought up in. He's calling him back. He's saying, remember who you've learned from and know where you learned it because it's from childhood. You've been acquainted with these sacred writings. What is he talking about here? What are the sacred writings? In Greek-speaking Judaism, which Timothy had grown up in, remember he came from a mixed family. His father was a Gentile, his mother a Jew. And so he grew up hearing these Jewish scriptures. And in Greek, they're called the eros grammata, meaning sacred writings. So he's talking about specifically the Old Testament, the Jewish scripture. He says, remember the sacred writings in which you've grown up in which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. So these sacred writings, the Old Testament scriptures, made Timothy wise unto salvation, which occurred for his mother, his grandmother as well, right? We know that because he says, the faith that was planted in them is found in them. But how? How did the Old Testament scriptures make him wise for salvation? Well, as we look at the Old Testament, we're able to view into the get a view into the revelation of God which points to a, a perfect, holy, merciful, just God who saves his people and calls them unto himself. So we know who God is and makes him wise. But then it also says the Old Testament shows God's redemptive work throughout history, pointing to the Savior that would come and would be the culmination of every promise, every prophecy, everything that was ever needed for salvation to occur was going to come in Christ and it was all prophesied in the Old Testament. So all of the Old Testament is pointing to this coming Savior. Obviously there's narratives and there's poetry and there's all types of writing. But all of this would come to a culmination, a climax in Christ. God's redemptive work throughout the Old Testament is the shadows pointing to the fulfillment that would come in the Messiah, the Chosen One. So as Timothy is growing up in these sacred writings... The fulfillment is then found when he hears the preaching about Jesus Christ. He says, everything that I've been waiting for, everything I've, I've been made wise to look for has been made known in this Christ. The Old Testament made Timothy wise to see who God is, to see his redemptive work, and then to make him wise to see the salvation that comes through Christ. The reality is, is that there are many Jews who will never have the veil taken away. But Timothy was made wise by seeing who he was looking for and then hearing Christ proclaim and saying, this is the Christ that fulfills everything I've been reading. This is the Christ that my mom and my grandmother told me about. I see. I know. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14 says, but their minds were hardened. Talking about the Jews. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. The reality is, is that there's many that won't experience the salvation in Christ. 
Thankfully for Timothy, he did. We see this happen again in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm just going to read this briefly for you. And just to give us an idea of the reality of the Old Testament scriptures pointing to Christ and why it is so important that we see that Christ is the fulfillment of all of it. This was God's redemptive plan throughout history. Starting in verse 26 of chapter 8 of Acts, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I? Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before his shears he was silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip. About whom? I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on rejoicing. The reality of the Old Testament pointing to the Christ. And then Paul, or, uh, Philip being here with his Ethiopian eunuch, showing us the reality that all of it is fulfilled in him. Look to Christ, the fulfillment. Friends, we've come to our final point here. We've seen the example for continuing in the faith. seen the reality of continuing in the faith. We've seen the call for continuing in the faith. So Timothy has looked upon Paul's life. He knows the reality of the Christian life now. That there will be persecution. He says, follow in the faith. Don't stop. Continue on. But it's not in his own strength. As we look at our fourth point, we'll see the power for continuing in the faith. Hear these final two verses again. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture. So with, as with many texts that we have throughout the, the Bible, there's debates, Right? There's always people that will say, well, it means this or it means that. Some say it should be translated every inspired scripture, pointing as if there are some that are not. Some say it should be every but not all, as if there's some big difference. Really, just it means if you say all scripture, it's a more broad way of saying every scripture because every one is just individual units within it. 
But let us not get confused into thinking that there should be some sense of debate here. There is no debate what Paul is meaning here. He means all scripture. This Bible that you have in your hands, all of it is God-breathed. All scripture is what he's talking about. He's not saying some. He's not picking out the ones that he likes or the ones that seem fitting. He's not picking out the ones that he desires. He says all scripture. Speaking of those sacred writings of the Old Testament. And we can assume that he's even talking about his own writings here. Because he says, as he, as he started out this letter, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is divine teaching. This is God's word here. And he says all scripture. And he's going to list out details of the power of the scriptures with depth. That should give us a special love and appreciation for, the, for God's revelation here. For the believer. He starts out, he says, is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. The Greek word theonostus means theo meaning God, right? Nostus meaning to breathe. It's where you get the words like pneumonia or any kind of pneumo like uh, lungs. And it means God breathed. It points to the source of the scriptures. The scriptures are quite literally the word of God. The written text, as you read it, is God actively speaking. The scriptures were indeed written by men with their distinct character and their distinct styles, but were God's word being spoken exactly how he intended the revelation to be. To be given through them for you. This does not take away from the reality of the text being God's word just because it was written by men. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this applies both to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old Testament, Acts chapter 1 and verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. The Bible is not just a collection of writings. It's not just a fun book with a bunch of different writings and writers. But it is truly the inerrant or incapable of being wrong and infallible, never failing word of God. Think about the implications of that. Since the scriptures are God's speech, misusing or abusing the text is misrepresenting the very God who you claim to speak for. The weight weighs heavy for the preacher. But for all believers, we should all be desiring that we speak exactly what the word of God says because we desire that he is represented correctly. May we desire to represent him that way as he has desired for to be represented, as he has revealed himself in his word. So since the Bible is the word of God, it is God breathed. There's some natural consequences that come from it. First, it is profitable. 
focuses on the sufficiency of the scripture. Profitable means that it's beneficial or it's productive. It's adequate. It has everything that you need. Scripture is profitable to meet the needs of the believer in all ways. And Paul gives us a list of some of those ways here. He says, for teaching. Scripture gives us the doctrine or the instruction that is needed for salvation. And as believers, we receive from it the teaching of our triune God. We, we know who he is. We see the teaching of God's redemptive work throughout history. We see Christ and the apostles who proclaimed this gospel. We see the reality of who God is and what he has desired to reveal. It is profitable for teaching. Since, God, God's, worth, uh, sorry, since God's word is truth, then his word is natural, naturally going to be profitable for teaching as it provides divine truth that supersedes our own views of truth. It goes above what we think is truth and it says this is truth. It is the authority for us. As Timothy was combating false teaching and as we do today, both in what we hear but also as preachers that stand at a pulpit and desire to preach truth, we must remember the sufficiency of scripture as being Good for teaching, profitable for teaching. It will teach us the truth and it will equip us to share that truth as we teach others. It applies specifically, obviously, to the pastor and teacher. But we all have a need to know truth. And where do we find it? The Word of God. God breathed scriptures. What more do we need? We have the full scope of what God's word has said to us. It's what God has desired to reveal to his people. And he says, this is what you need for teaching. You don't need to look somewhere else. You don't need to pull out catchy phrases. You don't need to go and teach from some other book. You have the Bible. What more do you need? Biblical churches are churches that teach God's word and stick to the text. It's profitable not just for teaching, but for reproof. Reproof meaning to rebuke conviction of misbehavior or false teachings and false doctrines. Scripture as God's word is naturally going to reprove. It will push out falsehoods and push out sin. And it will convict the reader and call them to remove their ungodly ways that they are walking in. The rebuke that comes from God's word brings us down. It tears us apart, right? That we might be built up in godliness. We're going to see that as we look at correction. This is an active piece of the ministry. Timothy was and pastors are today to use God's word to rebuke. We must come to know where we are wrong if we are to be corrected. We must know where we are wrong to do better. It's like that math problem again. If nobody ever tells us where we're wrong, we'll never do better. If we keep believing that 2 plus 2 equals 5, we'll never get it right. We must be rebuked. The scriptures are profitable for correction. This is the only time that this word is, here, is used here in the New Testament. And it refers to restoration, to a proper condition. After being shown error... By the rebuking power of the scriptures, there is correction of the believer. He's built back up in the scripture. <clears throat> correction is the positive gift given to those who are willing to accept a negative reproof. 
First Timothy chapter two, verses one and two, he says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So you have kind of two sides of the same coin. <clears throat> Reproof being torn down and kicking out all the falsehoods and correction being brought up in truth. He says it's also profitable for training in righteousness. Training being brought up or building up righteousness, meaning morally right or justifiable. The God-breathed scriptures are able to train a person for what is morally just, what is morally right. Since God is righteous, we see his righteousness revealed in his word. As you read the word, you see what righteousness is because God reveals it as he talks about himself. And so we may know him and walk in accordance with his word. It's profitable for training up in righteousness. And what happens? It says that the man of God may be complete. The man of God, it's only used of Timothy in the New Testament. It's used frequently in the Old Testament. We see it for those that have proclaimed God's word, the prophets. But here it's only used of Timothy. And he says, Timothy, and by extension preachers, that you may be complete. Adequate. Proficient in your calling. Therefore, the scriptures make the man of God capable to fulfill what he has been called to do. The scriptures equip him to be complete for everything. But friends, this also applies to you. The scriptures are profitable in every way to make you complete for the call that has been placed upon your life for your ministry. Whether that's in the home or in the workplace or in the church, wherever you have been called upon, You have been made complete. The scriptures have that ability to complete you for your endeavors, to complete you for your work. And he says, equipped for every good work, right? The man of God is equipped by the word of God that he may be able to do every good work. Being equipped is like being prepared, right? You're equipped to go on to a camping trip. It means you have your tent, you have your knife, you have your little propane tank, you have everything you need to go out. If you're not equipped, you don't bring your tent. Suddenly you're sleeping and there's rain everywhere. And he says, you are equipped, you are prepared, you have everything that you need. And what are those good works? It's those labors that bring honor to God. Brothers and sisters, this should be an encouragement for all of us. God's word can make you complete. It has everything. It is sufficient for you to fulfill every good work that he may call you to. God's word is sufficient that we may be honorable vessels, as we saw a few weeks ago, set apart as holy, useful to the master, ready for every good work, ready for every labor that brings God honor. And so, friends, as we close, I desire that you know that the Bible is indeed God's word. Defend it. Defend it. People are going to attack that. They're going to say, this isn't really God's word. Well, what about translations? Oh, well, we don't actually have the writings of the original guys. So how do you really know for sure? It is God's word. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is truth. There's all kinds of arguments that will come against it. But it's because people are suppressing the truth. This is truth. This is all you need. This is truth right here. 
Paul calls on Timothy to hold fast to the God-breathed scriptures as they're able to accomplish what is needed for him to be a faithful minister to the Lord. There are enough for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. They are sufficient that he may be found complete and equipped for every good work. That applies to everyone here as well. Friends, the scriptures have not changed. God's word is still the same, and it is still sufficient. Hear and heed the reality that God's word is what you need. We have so many false teachers out there that are teaching that God's word is not enough. Or at least they're acting like it isn't because they're giving you all kinds of other things. They're saying, well, here's God's word. But then also, if you wouldn't mind buying my book, it'll kind of help you with some areas that you haven't thought about. No, he says, God's word is sufficient. Is that to deny the the gifts that we have in other books? No, but God's word is sufficient. We have so many false teachers that just act like it isn't. But the reality is, is they, they want you to do something that is outside of what God has given. God has said, he does, you don't need more than this. They'll tell you that, false teachers will tell you, well, God revealed to me this special revelation. He's told me something here or there. I can't even remember who the guy was recently. Somebody saying that he was brushing his teeth and God would stand by his shoulder and whisper into his ear. The shame of it all, right? False teachers talking as if God is revealing something special. Friends, if you want to know what God's desire is, read his word. You want to experience God? Read his word. You want to hear God? Read his word. Don't get, uh, don't get caught up in trying to find some fresh or new revelation, as so many people try to do, but cling to the word of God. Hold on to it. Paul looked upon the future that Timothy and the church would go through. And what was his solution in those last days? What would be the thing that they needed more than ever in the evil and the wicked ways that they would experience out there? What's the solution? It's nothing new. He didn't say look to God for a new revelation. He didn't say look to God as, and say, God, well, how should I deal with this situation? Can you give me something that's not already written for me? He said, cling to the word. Because God's word is enough. It is sufficient for you. And the beautiful gift is that's as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. God's word is sufficient for the believer. It's truth, and we should cling to it. So put, it, put to death anything that is not in line with God's word this morning. If you find yourself outside of God's word, and the only way that you're going to do that is if you read it, you've got to read God's word. Find those areas where you're rebuked, but then be built up in correction. Be built up in truth. Brothers and sisters, as we close, I just I urge you, pick up your Bible. Take it in hand. Read it. The Lord is actively speaking through his text. Read the pages and cherish hearing the God-breathed revelation of truth that will equip you for every good work. Let us close in prayer this morning.